Okay, I'll get started. Uh, I apologize. Uh, there's some technical difficulties that uh, that somehow it's making the room a private room, which is not what I intended. So anyway, good morning. Uh, today is May the 29th, 2022. Uh, today's topic uh, is uh, the Supreme Court's history of protecting the powerful. Uh, it's uh, it's it's almost uh, very coincidental. I don't know why. Uh, almost every time when I have a episode, there will be some happenings that are somewhat relatable to the topic I'm going to talk about. So as we know, oh no, about this uh, 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 Texas mass shooting and. Uh, and uh, you somehow uh, find out that uh, the school shooting is uh, also can be included in this uh, kind of discussion about uh, judicial white privilege, believe it or not. So I'm going to get started. So today uh, I'm going to break down this episode into uh, three segments, or actually uh, three segments, and then uh, uh, and then the conclusion. So the first segment is uh, introduction. Uh, it's about uh, school bullying and the majoritarian democracy. Majoritarian democracy. The second segment, I'm going to talk about uh, 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 Professor Lawrence Tribe's uh, uh, Q&A session about why he thinks the Supreme Court is a tool of protecting the powerful. And then in the Third section segment. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, this again. Is from Professor Lawrence Tribe's article, a book review article. Uh, why uh, he believe it is a noble lie uh, to say the Supreme Court is a apolitical institution. And then afterwards, I'm going to conclude uh, the episode. So when it comes to education, America is the leader in producing mass shooters. All four mass shooting incidents at school uh, that I know of have some school bullying behind the shooter's motivations. Uh, that in, uh, these shooting incidents uh, I, I know of is uh, the Columbine mass shooting, and then the Sandy Hook mass shooting. And the third one is the uh, Parkland, Florida mass shooting. And the more recently is this uh, Texas mass shooting. And uh, school bullying creates rages. And uh, just like uh, racial oppression, racial bullying also creates Rages. So it's ironic that uh, I started this uh, show called the Judicial White Privilege, the People's History of American Jurisprudence. I started this show, uh, you know, somewhat triggered by a black rage shooting that happened in the New York City subway. And today, uh, you know, I, I will be able to link the school bullying with this uh, majoritarian de democracy and the judicial white privilege in the majoritarian democracy. 
So here's the segment one introduction: school bullying and the majoritarian democracy. Majoritarianism is a traditional political philosophy or agenda that asserts that a majority, sometimes categorized by religion, language, social class, or some other identifying factors of the population. Is entitled to a certain degree of a primacy in society, and has the right to make decisions that affect the society. Okay, school bullying,、uh, bullying, and the school shooting are related. Bullies, school bullies, are usually in the majority in numbers, and they are in more powerful positions. Bullying can be physical, sexual. Emotional, financial, psychological, political, social, and so on. Majoritarian bullying in a majority in a society means the minority member can be an easy target of majoritarian bullying. Racial oppression is a form of majoritarian bullying. In a school setting, there's no legal remedy for being bullied in a school. You know, you can consider school it's a micro society. In a larger sense, in 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 a mature and civilized society, there are supposed to be legal remedies for majoritarian bullying. In a legal terms, it's called for every wrong there must be a remedy. However, the sad reality in America is that, where in an absolute term no remedy is available to this kind of a societal bullying or school bullying, violence is the only outlet to compensate for the sufferings of prolonged injustice. Mass shootings at elementary school age children's. Are、uh, this kind of tragedies of extreme proportion? Black rage shootings are another violent, demonstrative form of seeking justice from majoritarian bullying. So one may ask the question: Then where is our courts and where is our judges? Well, according to Professor Lawrence Tribe, unfortunately, the courts are for the powerful groups. Not for the weak, not for the minorities. Lawrence Tribe, who turned eighty last year, has been one of the most prominent liberal legal scholars of the last half century. A professor to John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, a mentor to Barack Obama. And an advocate who has appeared dozens of times before the U.S. Supreme Court, Tribe has also published numerous books about the Constitution and the Court's history. More recently, Tribe, despite the reverence with which he initially wrote about the Court, has been highly critical of what he sees as its increasing rightward tilt. And the politicalization by Republican-nominated justices. Tribe has also established himself as a prolific commenter on current affairs, 
both on television and Twitter. Okay, so let's be sure that uh, this uh, Harvard law professor is well respected. He used to have a high respect for America's judicial system. But uh, from the recent events, he is no longer feel that way. And therefore, he had this uh, Q&A session with a New Yorker uh, in May. And uh, this, uh, uh, I initially thought that today's episode will be a very light and easy one because uh, I'm just going to, you know, uh, comment on what Professor Lawrence Tribe has said. Uh, but unfortunately, this tragic mass shooting happened. Therefore, I must link this uh, mass shooting, uh, school mass shooting, school bullying uh, into the context of a majoritarian bullying and the role of the court or lack of the role the court has played in stopping majoritarian bullying. Okay, so now I'm going to go to segment two. This segment almost strictly uh, exclusively just talk about this uh, Q&A session published in the New York Times, uh, sorry, the New, the New Yorker, not the New York Times. Uh, that Lawrence Tribes answered a few questions uh, by this uh, reporter. So at this point, I will ask the listeners to keep in mind, uh, you know, the, 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 our court systems, the, including the Supreme Court, has operated in a white majoritarian democracy. What I'm trying to say is that America, when it was founded, is a white majoritarian democracy. And that is my point of about white privilege, meaning that it's the white majority making the law, the white majority enforcing the law, and the white majority interpreting the law. So here's the question from the reporter. How has your thinking about the Supreme Court as an institution changed over the past 50 years? Here's the answer by Professor Try. I would say that because I am part of the generation that grew up in the glow of a Brown v. Board of Education and of the Warren and Brennan Court, and identify the court really with making representative government work better through the reapportionment decisions. Reapportionment decision, uh, just to put a note here, I think is uh, the decision about uh, 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 risk districting uh, for congressional seats and the protecting minorities of various kinds. I saw the court through rather rose-tinted glasses for a while. As I taught the court for decades at school, I came to spend more time on the dark periods of the court's history, thinking about how the court really preserved and protected corporate power and wealth more than it protected minorities through much of our history and how it essentially gutted the efforts at reconstruction. And I focused more on cases like Dred Scott versus Plassey's, Dred Scott and the Plassey versus the Ferguson and the Korematsu. These are all Professor uh, Tribe's words, okay? I'm still quoting the article. And in recent years, as the court has turned back to its 
characteristic posture of protecting those who don't need much protection from the political process, but who already have lots of political power. I became more and more concerned about its anti-democratic and anti-human rights record. I continue to want to make sense of the court's doctrines. I wrote a treatise that got very frequently cited around the world, and that shaped my teaching about how the court's idea in various areas could be pulled together. But then, after I had done the second edition of that treatise, and it and it became relied on by a lot of people. I decided, after the first volume of the third edition, basically to start that project. I'm going to pause here a little bit. Professor Tribe has been teaching the the history of the, our Constitution and our courts in the Harvard Law School. He basically produced this uh, 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 publication. He called a treatise, uh, basically uh, showing to the world, not just uh, within the United States, uh, showing to the world, other countries, how great the American court system has been operating for within the uh, the America's democracy. Okay, I call this a white majoritarian democracy. Uh, it is uh, until I think it's 2005. Uh, I looked up a letter where Miss uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe stopped working on that project because uh, the more he worked on the history of our courts, the more he realized the courts actually has a pretty damn bad record of anti being anti democratic and being anti human rights. And that is true. So I looked it up. It seems to me that as of 2005, he stopped working on that publication project that are being used worldwide. So now I'm going to continue with uh, this uh, Q&A session between the New Yorker journalist and Professor Lawrence Tribe. Question. What were you arguing in the first two editions? That means the first two editions of this publication I just talked about. The answer. The first was the first effort in probably a hundred years to pull together all of constitutional law. And it led to a rebirth or flowering of a lot of writing about constitutional law and writing more focused on methodology with the different forms of interpretation. I was very excited about that project. And the second edition continued it. Most of what I did was to see connections among different areas. I would be writing about commercial regulations. I would see themes that popped up in areas of civil rights and civil liberties. Or I'd be writing about separation of powers and I would see problems that arose elsewhere. And I was always trying to find coherence because my background in mathematics had led me to be, to be very interested in the deep structures of 
things. So Professor, uh, my comments here, Professor Lawrence Tribes, a very, very smart human being. He's originally in mathematics. Back to his answer. I was working on a PhD in algebraic topology when I rather abruptly shifted from mathematics to law. And so in my treatise, I developed what I thought of as seven different models of constitutional law. I'm always fascinated by different perspectives and lenses and models. I have never thought of law and the politics as strictly separate and the efforts by people like Stephen Breyer to say that we shouldn't concede that constitutional law, constitutional law is largely political have always seemed to me to be misleading. That said, I still saw efforts at consistency and concerns about avoiding hypocrisy from the court. But those things begin getting harder to take seriously. I'm going to take a pause here because uh, uh, Professor Lawrence's uh, wording is a little bit uh, legalese. And uh, I will just summarize what he just said. He take a very structured approach to evaluate the history of the constitutional law. He is uh, hoping to find, he quote, coherence among all kinds of decisions handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, he's trying to he's trying to establish an image of the court of being apolitical, not to be influenced by the politics, including racial politics. But as he is, as he has been working on this project, he called a treatise. He started finding it's very, very hard to have a coherent explanation, to have a coherent logic of why courts will make such horrible decisions, such as Dred Scott, you know, making African Americans not a human, such as Plessy versus Ferguson, legalized separate but equal, such as Korematsu where the government can mass incarcerate 120,000 people without even having a trial of any crime. So, so that I want to kind of uh, explain a little bit. I'm going to continue with uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe's answer. And then Steve Breyer, this is a Supreme Court justice, wrote me a long letter saying, when are you going to finish the third edition of your treatise? And I wrote him back a letter, which then was published in various places saying, I'm not going to keep doing it. And here's why. It was a letter that described how I thought constitutional law had really lost its coherence. I want to repeat with, uh, with uh, uh, what Mr. Uh, uh, Lawrence Tribes just said constitutional law had really lost its coherence and he said so when he responded to a Supreme Court Justice's question asking how come he stopped working his, uh, on his uh, publication for educational purposes so now 
So this is a, my point: is that you have a very, very intelligent human being used to be majoring in mathematics and switch to perform a structural analysis of the constitutional law of the United States, and it concluded in two thousand five that there is literally no coherence, no log- logic among so many decisions throughout the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. That is a very, very strong statement. Okay, so I'm going to continue on with this article. Question: At one level, you are saying something really changed with the court, but earlier you said that the court has always had some history of protecting the powerful and not protecting minority rights or the powerless. So did something change, or did the court just have this brief period after the Second World War, when you saw it as different, before returning to its normal posture? Here comes the answer. I think there's always been a powerful ideological stream, but the ascendant ideology. In the 1960s and 70s, was the one that I could easily identify with. It was the ideology that said that relatively powerless deserve protection by an independent branch of the government from those who would trample on them. I'm going to rephrase this、uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe's answer here. In his answer, he basically says this: throughout the entire history of the American jurisprudence, only in the 1960s and the 70s, when there was a brief period of time where the U.S. Supreme Court truly followed a principle to protect the less powerful groups, the racial minorities. For the rest of the history, prior to the 1960s and after the 1970s, basically what he says is that the court has always been protecting the powerful groups. Now that is from a Harvard law professor, not from me. Okay, and there's a lot of weight what he's just saying. Let me continue. Question: Right, the Warren Court. Was also ideological. It just happened to be an ideology that you and I might agree with. Answer: Exactly. No question. It was quite ideological. Justice Brennan had a project whose architecture was really driven by his sense of the purpose of the law, and those purposes were moral and political. No question about it. I am not saying that somehow the liberal take on constitutional law as free of ideology. There was, however, an intellectually coherent effort to connect the ideology with the whole theory of what the Constitution was for and the, what the court was for, mainly. The court is an anti-majoritarian branch, 
I want to repeat here. Mainly, the court is an anti-majoritarian branch. It's there to protect minorities and to make sure that people are fairly represented. I could identify with that ideology. It makes sense to me, and I could see elements of it in various areas of doctrine. But as that fell apart, and as the court reverted to a very different ideology, one in which the court was essentially there to protect the property interests and to protect the corporations and to keep the masses at bay, that's an ideology too. But it was not being elaborated in doctrine in a way that I found even coherent, let alone attractive. Okay, I'm going to take a pause here because uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe's wording can be, again, a little bit legalese. Uh, so I'm just going to, you know, break it down in a plain person's term. What he's basically saying is this. At least he thought Justice Brennan, uh, I believe Justice Brennan is a chief justice. At the time, he has a philosophy that uh, the purpose of the court is, is to protect the minorities. It's an anti-majoritarian branch of the government in a white majoritarian democracy. Okay, it is a, Justice Brennan's, this, uh, this idea, this, this value, this morale, being political now, being political principle now, saying that in the democracy where we believe all men are created equal, the court is supposed to be the anti-majoritarian branch to prevent racial bullying, to prevent powerful groups Take, taking advantage of the weaker groups, okay, and uh, and uh, and uh, that is what uh, Professor Lawrence Tribes believe also, and uh, he find out that it's only for a brief period of time, specifically 1960s, I would say early 1970s, the course actually operate in that way. So I'm going to continue with Mr. Tribe's answer. Maybe I am wrong about this, but I see more internal contradiction and inconsistency in the strengths of the doctrine of the people who came back into power with the Reagan administration and the Federalist Society. I'm not the person to make sense what they are doing because it doesn't hang together for me. Even if I could play the role that I think I did play with a version that I find more morally attractive, it is a project that I would regard as somewhat evil and wouldn't want to take, in, take part in. I'm not trying to paint the picture that says everything was a pure logic and the mathematics and the apolitical and the morally neutral in the good days of the Warren era the incoherent and ideologically driven in other times. I think that will be an unfair contract. So I hope what I've said to you makes it a little clearer. 
So what I believe, here's my comments. What I believe what Professor Tribes is saying is that after 1970s, he called it when the basically after Reagan took power and after the formation of this uh, powerful Federalist Society, uh, he believed uh, the decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court has become no longer coherent and uh, uh, they are no longer consistent with the Constitution. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a this is a acute observation, and that's that is exactly how I feel about the court has been operating. So that this includes the segment two about this uh, New Yorker's uh, Q and A article with uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe. Segment three, uh, where I'm going to talk about. Another article, uh, very briefly, also by Professor Lawrence Tribe. The name of this article is, it's a book review. Uh, it's a book review. Uh, the book under review is written by Justice Stephen Breyer, who just recently retired. The name of the book by Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, Breyer is uh, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of politics. So, first of all, I want I would like to uh, ask the listeners to keep in mind again is that the Supreme Court operates in a white majoritarian democracy, you know, and uh, under that circumstances, the question will be: Can the Supreme Court be apolitical? Meaning, can the Supreme Court uh, 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 keep itself? from political influence in a white majoritarian democracy? Well, Professor Tribes is saying, hell no, not possible. Okay, so when uh, Justice Stephen Breyer published this book called The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics, Justice Stephen Breyer basically insists that the Supreme Court is and has been a institution free from political inferences. And this book upset Professor Lawrence Tribe greatly. He wrote this book review in a very negative term. So, so before I go forward with that, he called uh, this a claim that U.S. Supreme Court is uh, apolitical, meaning free from political inference. He called this a a noble lie. What is a, a noble lie? In politics, a noble lie is a myth or a lie typically of a religious nature, knowingly propagated by an elite group to maintain social harmony or to advance an agenda. The noble lie is a concept originated by Plato as described in his book, The Republic. This uh, uh, criticism by Professor Lawrence Tribes of uh, Justice Breyer's book uh, is fascinating because uh, he literally saying 
Justice Breyer's publication of this book is almost a almost an intentional concealment of U.S. Supreme Court's history of protecting the powerful. And uh, I'm going to quote what uh, Professor Tribes review uh, here. Breyer's book surely the least impressive of his considerable body of extrajudicial writings is not a thoughtful exploration of the virtues and the vices of the well-meaning deception. In his stubborn avowal that the court, even with its current far-right supermajority, remains an apolitical body, he perpetuates a lie that is anything but not noble. I have written much that is entirely positive about his judicial opinions. So it pains me to say that his book reads as though it had been written by somebody, by someone utterly unaware of the implausibility of the factual claims. Again, a very legalese statement, but the way I read it is this. Professor Tribes is telling the public and the author, Justice Stephen Breyer, that factually speaking, collecting all the historic facts about the U.S. Supreme Court, no one will believe that U.S. Supreme Court is an institution free from political inference. In fact, the, quite the opposite is true. Okay? So he pretty much, he says, you know, uh, he clearly angers Ms., uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer uh, continue to insist that court is a politically neutral institution. And, uh, and so, you know, I would just use a, a similar example of what I think what uh, Professor Tribes is, uh, he, 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 what, what his angle is. So in a, in a real life, if you know a convicted pedophile is living in your neighborhood, do you have an obligation to spread the truth about this person? So let me repeat, if you know a convicted pedophile, you know, they, they are required to register as a you know, sex offender. If you know a person who is convicted as a pedophile, do you have an obligation to spread the truth about that person to protect others? So I think the answer is, of course, yes. And the, the, I think the Professor Lawrence Tribes uh, taking uh, Justice Stephen Bryce's book is this. If you keep saying the U.S. Supreme Court is free from political influence to the public for the purpose of maintaining this noble lie, a myth, that the court is always just, the court is always neutral, you are harming the general public. You're cheating. You're spreading a fake news, fake info, false information about the court. Okay, so my point of view is this. 
when courts historically and to the present time have exercised its discretionary powers not to follow the Constitution of the United States for the purpose of protecting the powerful at the expense of the racial minorities, how can you call the courts apolitical? The courts is part of the politics. Race is politics in a multiracial society in America. You cannot get away from it because America is is discovered to be a multiracial from day one. America is founded as a multiracial society from day one. The courts cannot be apolitical, period. The courts politically must be a tool to protect the powerful, regardless what the law is saying. Okay, and you know, and uh, you may ask, then why folks like uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, you know, are considered to be a liberal, a progressive, and all that? Why they want to maintain this noble lie? In my opinion. It's because we're, it's for profiteering. We are a capitalist society. We are a multiracial capitalist society. So making a profit is always the goal for lawyers and for the judges. Okay? And the, the judicial white privilege has always been all about property interests of the white majority in a white majoritarian democracy. So now I'm gonna come to the conclusion. You know, because, you know, tomorrow is the uh, Memorial Day, I'm going to, you know, use some of the uh, Gettysburg addresses, uh, address, I'm sorry, Gettysburg address, uh, where Lincoln says, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. However, the course history is a history of protecting racial bullies. The courts and the judges themselves have been the racial bullies. Okay. Lincoln, the President Lincoln in the Gettysburg address said, it is for us, the living, rather to be so it is, it is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work. In my opinion, the courts did not dedicate themselves to the unfinished work. As we all know, after, soon after the Civil War, the, the courts did the opposite. The court abolished the unfinished work by legally separating the so-called equals in Plessy versus Ferguson. It is fitting to point out, you know, the day before this Memorial Day, that after 600,000 people fought to their death in the Civil War, the blacks did not see a new nation where all men are created equal, all due to an old white Supreme Court handing down Plessy versus Ferguson. 
all men are created equal is a noble lie as far as the freed slaves are concerned. Judicial white privilege is a form of a white majoritarianism. Courts operate as a political expedient to protect the majoritarian oppressor's property interests and to keep the oppressed at bay. The America is a violent society for the same reason American schools produce mass shooters by allowing majoritarian bullying. To conclude, and by incorporating Professor Lawrence Tribe's arguments, I would declare that as long as America remains a multiracial society, the letters, quote, equal justice under law, unquote, engraved on the top of the U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., is a bright, shining lie. With that, I conclude today's episode. Thank you for listening and have a great day.